0: But as we now move into uh, this, the message this morning, I need you to realize that the message this morning for many people in our generation is very, very sensitive. And I am going to be talking, and I'll explain this in just a minute, I'm going to be talking about the what this week and then the how next week. Because we live in a generation in which people, when they listen to truth, and they don't like it, they have to reconcile that truth with their lives. And many times, instead of changing the way they live, they change what is called truth. And we're going to see that happen today, but I want to give you an example. Here's a young man, and he really starts falling for a young lady. He's a Christian, and he really wants to serve God. The young lady, however, is not. So his mom and dad, they have a talk with them, son, just want you to caution because this this girl doesn't know Christ. And he says, oh, you know, I have, marriage is not on the radar. Don't worry about that. I understand what scripture says about not marrying unbelievers, but you know, we're, we're just kind of being friends, okay? And mom and dad, okay, I'm, I just, I want to warn you, I'm just be careful because you can fall in love. Well, with that perspective of scripture that he has, about two years later, though, he then proposes, and they're now engaged, and she still is not a believer in Jesus Christ. Mom and dad talk with him again, son, you know, I'm really concerned because the Bible says not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament make this clear, you don't want to marry a non-Christian. So help us understand where you're coming from in this. And he says, oh, well, you know, maybe I haven't mentioned this to you. But the truth is, my perspective on what the Bible teaches on this subject has changed over time. As a matter of fact, I really believe that God only gives us commands so that we don't harm one another and that we actually express love to each other so for me marrying an unbeliever i'm not harming her and i don't believe that i'm harming myself i'm going to still go to church we're going to raise our children going to church and i really believe that this is going to work out and you know what mom and dad maybe one day she'll accept christ mom and dad are a bit disappointed His, their son's view has changed they he's actually looked at the word and he's gone through some of the scriptures and they're saying but son that is not what the text says and his response is, well, you know what? The Bible is interpreted in many different ways. He marries the girl, and their mom and dad's heart is, is broken. Yes, m- perhaps one day their daughter-in-law will accept Christ and walk with Jesus. What about the children? What, what, what about their son? What, the danger. Scripture warns us not to marry unbelievers but now he's reduced the commands of God's word to his own understanding of what love is. You know what? If I'm not hurting the other person and I'm not hurting myself, then there shouldn't be any problem with what scripture, with what I'm doing, and therefore maybe the problem is the cultural context of the Bible and and when it commands that. Now, I'm just going to let you know that This is not too far off track. I remember I was talking with uh, a, a dad just not too long ago, and he's saying that he was, his daughter was now saying that she truly believes that scripture teaches that it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. And that if she's looked at the cultural context, and she's looked at the scriptures again, it doesn't forbid it. And he was like, what are you talking about? The subject today, though, is not just simply marrying unbelievers or sexual immorality, having sex before marriage, but it goes deeper. We could talk about same-sex attraction and same-sex marriage we, we could talk about marrying unbelievers we could talk about premarital sex divorce and remarriage the state overreaching its biblical bounds all of these scripture lays out for us but we're living in a generation in which what scripture says doesn't suit us too well and consequently i'm not the i'm not going to be the one that changes our generation is saying and and when i say our generation i'm talking about those who are being raised up in the church They're saying maybe something's wrong with the Bible and we need to reinterpret it. And my question is, if we're going to do that, we need to be ever so careful because too many times we appeal to cultural context and it allows us then to read into the Bible what truly is not there. There is one interpretation of scripture, church. There's not many. There's one interpretation. And we must allow our sor- our souls, our hearts to be conformed so that the spirit truly is teaching us what it means. Now, you me use a very simple example when Romeo is talking to Juliet and Juliet says, wherefore art thou, Romeo? How silly. And I used to believe this way back when I was in junior high how silly it would be to understand that she is saying, where are you, Romeo? But instead, it means, why are you, Romeo? When we realize that Shakespeare had only one interpretation in mind, we begin to understand better what's going on in that scene and and for the rest of the play. But the truth is, when we come to Scripture, we have to be so careful That we don't twist it to suit our desires, but we 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 encounter this now everywhere in the church, in which we're compromising with truth. This morning, today, it's probably the most hotly debated issue next to abortion, in which it which is happening. And that is with regard to the LGBTQ issues. Is homosexuality specifically condemned by the Bible or not? That's a very serious question because many raised in the church are saying, you know what? According to the cultural context, we need to now reinterpret the Bible. See, the church apparently has been wrong for 1,900 years, and now our generation and even with this feeling as if they are god ordained we must reinterpret scripture so as we go through this topic this morning i want us to realize we're going to look at the what so it's going to be a little bit more teaching but next week we got to look at the how how then in view of what scripture teaches how do we communicate this truth to this generation because i'm going to just let you know right now that there are extremes and that's generally where the church is finding itself, rather than walking this balance, and that balance is crucial for our generation to see the truth and respond to the truth. Too many times, it's not so much the truth that's offensive; it's how we are presenting it. And we're going to look at Paul and Jesus and a number of others and how they responded in certain contexts, because it's not a it, it's it, it's not a one way suits every situation. And this is the difficulty of it. So this morning, my goal is to be gracious, but to be absolutely firm with what scripture teaches on this subject. So let's do that. Let's ask that question. According to the Bible, is homosexuality, is it wrong? Now let, let me explain here. I am not saying same-sex attraction. If you were to listen to the testimonies of many who have come out of the homosexual lifestyle, every now and then they they still wrestle with that attraction, but they refuse to give in to it. I am not suggesting that the Bible is condemning same-sex attraction and saying, that's sin, but let me say this, it is a temptation and it opens the door. For someone to cater to that, they are feeding that opportunity they're feeding what, what, what's going on in their heart that is misaligned and before you know it they're going to be pulled in the wrong direction and they will stumble into homosexual acts and that is what scripture condemns so much could be said just about that topic so we're focusing on homosexuality as a practice is that wrong or is it okay okay so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play just a little bit of devil's advocate. There are four things that we're going to look at in order to kind of wade through this very difficult topic. And I say very difficult only because of the uprising within the church. And, and you step back and you say, help me understand why you would view it this way. It's important and it's crucial for us to understand why they view certain texts the way they do so that we can respond graciously but firmly Because this is truth, and whenever a generation discards the truth, they begin to stray away into deceit, and this then becomes a salvation issue. This is so crucial. So let me just preface it by looking at two scripture passages, one in Acts 20, and it says this, Acts 20, verse 29, Paul is warning the Ephesian elders, and he says this, I know That among you, excuse me, and I know that after I leave, savage wolves, underline that phrase, savage wolves, wow, that seems a bit harsh. Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, church, be on your guard, remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears, with tears. Church, do you get the feeling that this is a serious subject for Paul? Whatever these savage wolves are teaching for Paul, and he's communicating to the elders, this is serious. You need to be on your guard. What might he be talking about? He is talking about issues that deal with salvation, issues that deal with salvation, he says these people are going to rise up from your own number, from the very people that you were teaching. Marcion was one of the first heretics. Now, obviously, he wasn't the first, but Simon the Simon Magus or Simon the sorcerer from Acts 8, uh, history tells us he was the first, even though he verbalized some assent to Jesus Christ, he is known to be the father of deception and of falsehood and wrong teaching. And I'm not going to get into his teaching, but Marcion was one of the main distorters of truth, heretics. In church history, I'm not going to get into all that he believed, but he did embrace much of Gnosticism and he rejected most of the Bible, except about 10 of Paul's letters. He began to preach a different Jesus, a different gospel. Polycarp met him one day and he called him the spawn of Satan because he was trying to rise up within the church as a leader, a young man. And Polycarp recognized this man distorts the truth of God's word to suit his own personal needs and his own personal perspectives. And they were wrong. They were detrimental. They spelled death, not life. So this is serious. Be on your guard, Rise, raised up even amongst your own myths. And they're called savage wolves. Not Don't think that savage wolves have long teeth. I'm saying that metaphorically, but... Don't believe that these are people who you can recognize their falsehood right away. It's just moving away just a little bit from Scripture and then a little bit more and then a little bit more and on into heresy. And it leads people to the path of destruction and not life. These are savage wolves. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They look a certain way, but when you listen to them, Hang on, that's not what the Word of God teaches. Now, I'm not just talking about simple things like baptism and some variations within that, or even you know, women in ministry, should they be pastors or not? I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about things that are salvation or salvific issues. Let me just read one more passage to you in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, sorry, wrong passage there I turned to. 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says this, chapter verses 15, to seven, 15 and 16, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. In other words, the longer he takes to return, the more people will come to Christ. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters concerning salvation. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Even Peter recognizes this. So if you're reading through the book of Romans and you're thinking, wow, what does Paul mean by that? You're not the only one. Even Peter wrestled with some of these things. Paul was, a, he was a, such a clear, but he was a detailed type of preacher that sometimes it would be hard to understand him. Not impossible. But he says, but they're hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort or twist as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Wow. Twisting what Paul says, but they do so to their own destruction. This seems pretty serious. Let me just tell you, in Galatians chapter 5, It says this, that the acts of the sinful nature or the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And he says this, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who practice these things will not inherit The kingdom of God. Church, if if we are looking at a sin that we are engaged in and we refuse to repent, that means something is deeply wrong with our heart. Something needs to change. And if we're taking scripture, twisting it to suit that sinful desire so I can continue to engage in that sin, then I'm going to tell you this is a salvation issue. If we seek to erase what scripture has to say about sexual immorality and and that's sexual immorality is a large category it doesn't just mean sex before marriage though it can just like the word fornication fornication we generally understand to mean sex before marriage but if you look it up in, in Webster's dictionary it means all types of sin in in certain contexts in other contexts it does mean premarital sex so it has both of those definitions and as it's generally used in the New Testament, it's generally used as a broad brush approach to sexual sin and homosexuality. If the Bible condemns it, would fall into that category. And he says here, wait, wait, if you practice sexual immorality as a lifestyle, that you don't repent from it, you're not struggling with it, something is wrong. In your heart. It's not by doing so many sins. You're just going to fall away from grace. But the issue is the heart. That heart. Obviously has not been converted. It's not been changed. By the power of the gospel. Something is wrong. Paul is saying. So that he goes so far as to say. That those who practice these sins. Practice them. Part of their lifestyle. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, I mean, is Paul the only one who's playing that note? In Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, it says this, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So, before we launch into this topic, jumping in the deep end with both feet, let's understand this is a serious topic. It falls in the category of sexual immorality. And if the Bible condemns homosexuality, then those who are practicing it, they will not inherit eternal life. They are still outside the kingdom. And if we're trying to call people out of that lifestyle to follow Jesus, but they are content and feel scripture is okay with it, they cannot hear the gospel. They cannot repent. Just like someone who's I'm just gonna choose to live with this guy. But we need to repent. And if we refuse to repent, we will remain outside the kingdom. So do you see this this truly is a serious, serious topic? So, let's just now ask the question, what does Scripture then teach about this? I think we can see the seriousness of it. And if there's anyone listening who is wrestling with this, I in no way want to somehow communicate as if God is so against them that there is no opportunity for redemption that somehow he doesn't understand your pain. Because I've spoken with enough who've struggled with this lifestyle to realize there's an inner ache. There's a wrestling. They feel as if they were made this way. And so we need to just step back. What does scripture say? A sensitive topic, but we must take a stand, church. We must. So let's now look at Leviticus chapter 18. Actually, there's a passage in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 in which scripture calls out this sin. But those who would claim to be Christians and who either are engaged in a homosexual lifestyle or who pastor a church that opens the doors to them, And seeks therefore to erase homosexuality as a sin. They look at this passage and they they say you need to understand the cultural context. So let's do that first. Let's read those two verses and let's understand the cultural context. What does it say? Now, please understand. There's there's four main scripture passages that we're going to look at. Okay. This is serious. We need to be students of the word, and if we're going to guide people out of sin into a lifestyle that is now given to the kingdom of God, we must understand how to rightly interpret these passages. So I'm going to suggest that this is serious. What we're doing, what we're about to engage in right now is serious. So Leviticus 18.22, it says, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. It says, if you turn the page to chapter 20, verse 13, it says, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. That word detestable is how the NIV translates it. The King James, if that's what you're using, uses the word abominable. So here's the cultural context, we are told. See, the word abomination is used in the context and refers to idolatry, and I was to step back and I say, you know, many times it does; it is used in that context in saying that idolatry is abominable. But then those who want to erase homosexuality as a sin would say, so let's take one more step further. Therefore, these passages have to do with idolatry, sex within idolatry. We call that cultic prostitution. That is, in this religious practice of idolatry, whatever God you're serving, there's generally a shrine, and a cult prostitute would have sex with someone else as a religious expression of what they believe in their worship of God, with a a little G, of course. And so they would say this uses the word abomination, and therefore he's talking about cultic prostitution. He's not talking about homosexuality as far as a man and man or a woman and a woman falling in love with one another. That type of love doesn't have to do with idolatry, and they're certainly not prostituting themselves to each other. They're just a man falling in love with a man And love is the goal, right? Why would God command us not to love one another? Hmm. Is this really the context? Here's what you find. There are times in which this Hebrew word translated abomination, or the NIV says detestable, has to do with idolatry. But many times it does not. Take the the book of Proverbs, for example. This Hebrew word is used 20 times. Only twice does it have to do with idolatry. The other 18 times have to do with sins, such as having or using inaccurate scales. Pride. Lying. Lying is called an abomination. Murder. Stirring up dissension through gossip slander. That is an abomination. That is detestable to the Lord. Six things are an abomination. Yes, seven are an abomination to the Lord, and it lists seven things. And it is not just exclusively idolatry. So it in no way exclusively refers to idolatry. It more often than not doesn't refer to idolatry. As a matter of fact, if it did, Maybe we should, in, in, excuse me, in uh, Leviticus 18, maybe we should read the very next verse. I read to you verse 22. Verse 23, can you imagine this, and I personally can't, in the shrine of a prostitute for cultic prostitution. Verse 23, do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. This speaks of bestiality. I don't know if bestiality is... I've never heard of bestiality being practiced in cultic prostitution. What religious beliefs does the animal have that needs to be expressed in cultic prostitution? Obviously none. So this context certainly does not have to do with cultic prostitution. As a matter of fact, if you read further down, in verse 26, it says, But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable or abominable things. It, It says here, For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. He, he's, he's talking about all of these things, not just verse 22, all of these verses being an abomination. All of these verses simply have to do with, in the very beginning of the chapter, he, Moses tells the people, don't be like the people of Egypt that you came out of. Don't be like the people of Canaan. All types of sins in which as their sins raised up before God, God came to this point where he says, this culture is so ingrained and enmeshed in sin and sinful practices, not just idolatry. I need to wipe out this this culture. God has rarely done that in history, but he has. Canaan or the Canaanites were one such people. And so For us to just blanket say, this has to do with cultic prostitution, that that doesn't stand the test. Number two, when we look at the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, we are told that it does not have to do with homosexuality, but it has to do with rape. Now the word homosexuality is not used in Genesis 18 or 19; it's not used there. But clearly, God is sending two angels into Sodom, where Lot and his family are, and He's saying, "I want to, I want to, I want to see firsthand with, see firsthand whether the cry that has come up from the land, from the people who live there against Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, whether it's true or not." And so obviously God knows this, and and there's a reason why God does this, and it's very specific for Abraham interceding for the people of Sodom. But when they go there, they want to have sex with the men. They're angels, but they appear as men. They want to have sex with them. Hey, bring them out so that we can have sex with them. We are told that that's, that's rape, and that is what God, that's why God condemned this practice. Not for the homosexuality, but they wanted to rape the men. Is this true? Now there's much that could be said, and I'm just going to point to one passage, and that would be in Jude chapter 7. If you want to turn there, you may. But Jude actually refers to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. How does he do that? In verse 7, he says this: In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Now, this word for perversion is a a different kind of word. It's literally translated different or other flesh. That is kind of a strange way to talk about perversion. It certainly would be perversion, but what is he talking about? Other flesh. We're told that, well, they're talking about other flesh being angel flesh, that those who see these angels, they want to have sex with them. And that is why Sodom, for the sexual immorality and the desire for the angel flesh, having sex with angels. But can I ask you, did they actually have sex with the angels, church? Did they? No, they didn't. And who specifically desired this? It was only the people in Sodom. It wasn't the people in Gomorrah or the surrounding cities. They didn't even know that the angels came to Sodom. They weren't engaged in this, that specific incident. So obviously this, the the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah has raised up before God and he's about to bring judgment upon them for sexual immorality and desiring other flesh or having sex with other flesh. So what would this mean, other flesh? Matthew 19, 4 through 5. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 5. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. And he's saying, the Pharisees are wanting, you know, it's an issue of divorce that Jesus ends up talking about divorce and remarriage. And Jesus says, you know what, Moses permitting divorce, it wasn't always this way. And Jesus launches into a biblically-based argument. He says this, it wasn't this way, excuse me, he says, but rather, from the beginning, God made them male and female. To what end? That they become one flesh when they marry. And if God makes them one flesh, Man should not separate that one flesh. Now there's much more, of course, in that dialogue I'm not going to get into, but Jesus makes it clear. His own interpretation of those passages in Genesis chapter 2 clearly is suggesting or stating that God made the male and female because as male and female, they are to become one flesh in marriage. That is God's preordained situation for marriage. That's how God wrote the book. That's how God created them. Not male and male or female and female to become one flesh. But from the beginning, they were made male and female that God would make them one flesh. So that is the norm, male with female. Other flesh would be anything outside of the male-female sexual relationship. That would be other flesh. Not normal, but other flesh. And so Jesus tells us clearly it is male and female. If you didn't get it in the beginning in Genesis 2, get it now. Matthew 19, Jesus is saying male and female. that He created them to be one flesh. And so when Jude is talking about sexual immorality and other flesh, it means men not having sex with women in the context of marriage, but men with men and women with women. The third thing that we look at, and I'm not going to spend much time in this, but there are generally two Greek words that are used in the New Testament that are translated as homosexuality or... um, Male prostitutes. Now, granted, these Greek words, they're not found very many times in the New Testament. They're not. And those who would take the view that that they don't refer to homosexuality, translate them as effeminate, and therefore it has to do with older men with boys. And that's how these words should be translated. It has to do with pedagasties. Older men with non-consenting voice or forcing voice. Is, was that a practice in the Roman Empire during Paul's day? Absolutely it was. But is that what he's referring to? There's just too many times in how this word is used outside of the context of the New Testament in which age was not a factor. It wasn't just always older men with younger men. Is that the context at times of some of these? Yes. But not, but not all the time by any means. And so it would be inaccurate for us to say that, number one, that they were always boys, and number two, that they were it was always non-consensual. But the thing I want to focus on, and the, the fourth thing to, to then move into our conclusion, is Romans 1. Now, I, I need to give some background on this, because Romans 1 is perhaps the most specific and clear passage that condemns homosexuality. So this is going to be important— how do they view that, and how do we respond? Now, I don't want, you to, lose, I don't want to lose you on this. The understanding these truths, and I hope that some of you are taking notes so that you can, you can, with a heart of compassion, be able to share these truths that in our day are being erased or, or lines being blurred, that we be able to present them lovingly. But this is, this is what Scripture teaches, to recognize the error and direct them to the truth. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read the two verses to you, 26 and 27, that specifically refer to homosexuality. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust. one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty. Church, this is why my heart breaks so much for those involved in the LGBTQ community. There, There is a penalty when we engage, when we step outside of God's directives, of God's laws, and we just do what we feel is right rather than what God believes is right, and especially erasing or twisting what God says to suit our purposes. When we step outside of those guidelines, those commands, we suffer harm every time. Whether we can immediately recognize it or not, something is twisted, something is hurt and bent and even destroyed within us. and receive in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. <laughs> Here is a quote from someone who sees this passage vastly different than, than I do. It says this, The homosexual practices cited in Romans 1, 24 to 27, I read verses 26 and 27, were believed to result from idolatry and are associated with some very serious offenses, as noted in Romans 1. Taken in this larger context, it should be obvious that such acts are significantly different from loving, responsible lesbian and gay relationships seen today. Now, just so you know, I'm going to approach it now for just a moment from a biological perspective, because many times in our day, people are using biology To say, see, God just wired them. That's just the way they are from birth. This is from, again, the biological or genetic perspective, From a quote from Nature magazine. In a study of data from hundreds of thousands of people, researchers have now identified genetic patterns, whatever genetic patterns are, okay, They, they don't necessarily define that now identified genetic patterns that could be associated with homosexual behavior. Really? Their findings, they go on to say, could help to explain why genes that predisposed people to homosexuality continue to be passed down. So the focus of this study is, how, if, if homosexuality is genetic, why doesn't nature select it out of the community? But it's still there, why? And that's what the article tries to, you know, that homosexuality actually promotes homosexuality genetically. I mean, within homosexuality, you understand you can't have children unless you adopt. So why doesn't nature select that out? That's their perspective. And and that's what the article is about. But let me just share you a little bit later. It says none of these... Shared variations in genetics seemed to greatly affect sexual behavior on its own, backing up previous research that has found no sign of a gay gene. But the collection of variants, the collection now, not singularly, but the collection seemed to have a small effect overall. Let me just say in the very beginning in the very first sentence they say this but some scientists question the conclusions I'd be interested who are those who are those scientists what percentage of scientists genetic scientists Well here's something from a Harvard study of 470,000 people and the author Benjamin Beale from the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT he says this That there is no gay gene, and it's effectively impossible to predict an individual's sexual behavior from their genome. So the argument from biology is very convoluted. There is no evidence to suggest that there's a gay gene, and there truly is no evidence that all of these markers, as they're called, or variations, working together predispose someone to homosexuality. Though some have come to that conclusion, many scientists are saying no. It's just not fair. It's not a fair con-. And, and And these aren't just a bunch of Christian genet- genet- geneticists, there we go, who are saying no. Th- th- these are guys from Harvard and MIT and other places. No, I, I, I disagree with that. So, what is the argument? Basically, that this context of Romans 1, again, has to do with cultic prostitution. But if we were to read the whole passage, is that really the context? Actually, it says there in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who, listen to this, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He then launches into this teaching that when we choose to push God away or redefine God, not according to the Bible but our own desires, when we redefine God or push him out of the picture so that we can engage in our sin, that sin destroys something in us. And and Paul puts it this way, that God looks upon them and he eventually just gives them over to their sin. And it gets worse. And they give them over to other sins. The context, though it does refer to idolatry, That's not the context of this entire passage. It's about those who are suppressing the truth by their wickedness. Their wickedness isn't just idolatry, though that is an example. And we read about that example in the very next paragraph, verses 21 through 23. But then he launches into, verse 24, sexual immorality. Then he gets very specific in the passage I read to you in verses 26 and 27, having to do with homosexuality. Then the third time he says God gave them over, he's not just talking about cultic prostitutes here. He the, this, the the list that God gives them over to is even broader. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, verse 29. Deceit and malice, they're gossips, slanderers. Is he just talking about cult prostitutes? No, he's talking about those who are seeking to suppress truth by their wicked lifestyle, excusing it, rewriting the book, so to speak. So what is is what what is the proper understanding, then, of this passage? Because th- this is the passage, and I think everyone would agree with it, that is so very clear that in our day is now being reinterpreted. Cultic Prostitution. But See, this isn't talking about homosexuality. It's talking about homosexuality in the context of cultic prostitution and seeing that, hey, this isn't what people are engaging in, same-sex sex. That's not what they're engaging in today. It's not cultic prostitution. So, therefore, homosexuality outside of cultic prostitution must be okay. Do you see this? Well, let's look at this a little closer, could we? And, again, I, I realize my concern here today is is strong. I don't I, I want to be careful. I don't want to overstate what I'm saying. But I I I feel that me and all of us, as we we must defend truth. Because whenever truth is bent or twisted or distorted, perverted, we're gonna have a generation that strays away from the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So please understand. My heart embraces the homosexual. It just does not embrace their practice. Romans chapter 1. The first thing he says here is, in verse 26, that they, the women exchange natural relations or natural functions for unnatural ones. The word that's used here for natural is the Greek word phousis. We generally understand physis to, we get a word physics or physical. It's literally nature. Now, even as psychology has a debate of nature versus nurture, that's exactly what the Greeks wrestled with too. Except instead of nurture, they, they use this idea of education or something that you have learned. So, They said, there's that which is fusus or nature, that's innate. You're born with it. And then, there is that which is not. You learn it later. Like customs, culture, education, socialization. These are nurture. That's the term we use today. So, it's that which is way, or nature, or physical, or that which is learned later. So, what is innate, then, are these relationships male and female? In the context of marriage, of course. Outside of the context of marriage, Paul and other authors clearly call that sexual immorality. In the context of marriage, it's right and proper and good and beautiful. But that is the natural relations. Though there is a desire to misunderstand what natural relations are, I think it becomes very clear in verse 27 because it says in the same way. So there's a parallel here. Women with women. Now he talks about men and men, but he he uses even more words to describe what he's actually getting at. Listen to this. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations or natural functions with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. So we know right away that abandoning natural relations, those natural relations had to do with sex because in abandoning it, they turned to what? Lust. Lust is a sexual fantasy. It's a sexual desire for someone else or something else that's not yours. It's wanting that sexually. And so in this context there, he's very clear. They leave that which is natural to embrace what? Lust. Men with men, he says, inflamed with lust. He calls it indecent in verse twenty-seven. Men committed indecent acts with other men. It's called shameful in verse twenty-six. Because of this, God gave them gave them over to shameful lusts. It's shameful. He, as I read, they were inflamed with lust. That's another word that's used to characterize this male-male, female-female sexual relationship. And a perversion. The Greek word used here for perversion literally means deceit or a straying away error. An error that leads my heart astray to follow after that which is sin. And it's wrapped up in deceit. I think if we're very fair with this context, it it doesn't have anything to do with cultic prostitution. It has very clearly to do everything with male-male, female-female, homosexual acts. Again, as we look at what Scripture has to say, I believe our response needs to be one of compassion. And we're going to see next week Though there's a way to express that in a way that's tender in most occasions. There are some times in which we have to be the prophet and we have to speak very clearly. And Jesus did this as well. But I want to leave you with this. As, as we speak very firmly about this sin issue, I'm only using this as an example, because there are many examples in our day-to-day in which the world, wanting to respect the Bible, and even so-called Christians wanting to respect the Bible, they're also wanting to erase sin patterns, redefine them so that they're no longer sin, and embrace those these certain lifestyles, and... and Certain teachings, that now it's okay. See, once we once we put it in the cultural context, and so our challenge is what does scripture say? But I want to leave with you, leave this with you. I want your heart to be burdened for these people. They they are they're not all in this group that politically has an LGBTQ agenda. But there is something in their heart. And I don't even suggest to you that it is broken. And, and it's not just in the homosexual community church. That's what sin does sin breaks us. I have spoken with people who, at the age of 12, were sexually molested a boy sexually molested by a man. And it twisted something so deeply in him. The result of sin, even one man against another, a woman against another woman, it, it destroys something. That I believe that as we press into God, and sometimes very hard church, this is not some easy issue to deal with. I don't know of any homosexuals' testimony that said, yeah, it was a breeze to walk away from it. It, it just wasn't. God needs to heal that heart. Even though they're sharing what they have heard about, the Bible says this about it, and it must be okay. Let's understand that that's coming from a heart that's been twisted and hurt. That's the nature of sin. I want to share with you a story in closing. When I was a teen pastor, it has nothing to do with homosexuality, by the way, but it's it was it was a young boy who just knew the art of pestering people. He got on everybody's nerves. I was a part of a small church. I worked with the teens there, and the teen group was small. And this seventh grade boy had a tendency to get on everyone's nerves. There were two older boys in 11th and 12th grade that everyone looked up to. But when this 7th grade boy would do things that were just very attention-getting, these two older boys would attack him, would belittle him, would say things that were very hurtful, try to put him in his place, try to say, hey, look, why do you do that? And they would even call him out, why do you do that? Why do you want to make a nuisance of yourself? And it really hurt the guy. And if you could just crawl into this 7th grade boy's life that's all he knew how for people just pay attention to him but it actually pushed people away he didn't know that and i remember having a talk with this seventh grade first of all with these two older guys and i said guys can you just try to see life from this boy's perspective This is all that he knows. There's obviously some wounds. He just doesn't know how to deal with them. But when you guys, and you're going to set the pace for this teen group, when you respond hurtfully the way you do, everyone else is going to do the same thing. But what if? What if you had such patience with him, such compassion in the midst of him crying out for attention that he shouldn't be doing these things? Correct. True but if you were to love on him, if you were to respond so patiently and lovingly, I wonder how that would affect him. And, and I had a talk with this seventh grade boy because I had to attack this problem from both sides. And I didn't go into great detail, but I just pointed him to Jesus. Within months, that boy's life was changed. How everybody treated him totally changed. He felt loved. He felt accepted. He didn't have a desire to do these silly things to draw attention to himself, because people loved him no matter what. He eventually got to that place where he matured and outgrew those ways. But the heart of the issue was something was broken in here, and the result was hurting people, frustrating them, just saying things he shouldn't have said, doing things that pushed people away, but they loved him instead. Do you see the, the application now? If we're bringing truth to the LGBT community, how we do it is so crucial. It must come from a heart of compassion, understanding, and, and granted, when I say understanding, most of us, we don't know what it's like to have that perspective and that mindset and and the upbringing. We've not experienced what they've gone through. All we know is it's sin. In John 8, when Jesus called that adulteress out of her sin, he was so compassionate with her and he left her with this, go and sin no more. He had such compassion. Can that be how we call Share Christ with the LGBTQ community and point them to Jesus from a heart of compassion. Can you stand with me? Father, I want to thank you for the truths of your word. And as we look next week at the how, how do we actually do this? I know this is going to be hard, but Father, give us the understanding of your word. Don't let us stray from the truths of your word. Sometimes, God, your word is hard. It's hard. But I just ask you, Father, give us hearts that are always pliable. May we never look to scripture to twist it to suit our personal desires. So, Father, would you help us not just understand your word, how to live it out, but how to call this world now to Jesus Christ and him alone In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.